Father, as we look in your word this morning, help each of us to see those things you want for us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked through the book of Jonah and <clears throat> this funny, this anti-hero guy in Israel's history, this guy who runs away from God's will because it's not what he wants. And <clears throat> Jonah knew something about God's goodness, uh, his mercy, his loving kindness, his slow anger. In fact, he said in Jonah 4, verse 2, he says to God, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah said that as the motivation for running away from God's call to go to speak to that big, evil, wicked city of Nineveh. Because he was afraid if he warned them about impending judgment, <clears throat> knowing what kind of God God was, God might relent. Nineveh knew the benefit of God's mercy and compassion, his slow anger, his kindness. Because when they heard Jonah's preaching about judgment coming, they repented from the least to the greatest. And they called out with the thought that maybe... God would relent. Maybe he wouldn't follow through on judgment. Maybe they could get mercy from him. And they did. Nineveh knew. They, they became recipients of the grace Jonah was afraid they would. Jonah knew something about God's grace, and Nineveh did too. But you know, a hundred years later, a hundred years after Jonah, and a hundred years after Nineveh's great repentance, and by the way, historically unprecedented repentance and revival. Unprecedented. By a guy who didn't want to see them turn. Unprecedented. But just a hundred years later, my how things have changed. We're in the book of Nahum this morning. As we march through the minor prophets, we're majoring in the minors, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. My how things have changed. Nahum lives in the period in the 600s, about 100 years after Jonah, maybe prophesies up to about 620, 625, somewhere in there. And the question now arises, kind of in Jonah's day it was, will God judge Nineveh or will he spare them? I'm afraid he'll spare them. 100 years later, the question arises again, what will God do with Nineveh? Because the tide has turned. And Nineveh has changed. Nineveh now, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, they've returned essentially to their old ways. They were a violent nation before and they've returned to their violence and their pride. And the question kind of comes up like this. What will God do now? A hundred years ago and a couple generations back, he overlooked Nineveh's sin and didn't bring judgment. What will he do in our generation, in our day, will he forgive them again? Will he warn them again? Will judgment come this time? This nation that had been shown mercy and compassion has turned violent. What will God do? This nation, by the way, at this point, had been the means by which God had disciplined the nation of Israel, that is, the northern ten tribes. And in 722, it was Assyria, capital in Nineveh, that destroyed Israel and scattered Jews through the land. Assyria had done that. 
Assyria had been used by God to judge Israel, what would God do now about Israel or about Assyria and their ungodliness? Would he wink at it? Would he extend compassion? Would he bring judgment? What will he do? Nahum's name, by the way, means mercy, but there's not much mercy to be found in this book. Let's start in at Nahum 1. We'll only read, as we have in the past, some excerpts. Starting at the beginning of Nahum, the oracle or the burden or the message for Nineveh, remember that what we read following is about Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite from Elko, we don't know where that town is, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. Clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him. But... With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, Nineveh, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. In Nahum 2 at verse 13, God says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. By the way, if you've ever looked at any of the archaeology of Nineveh and Assyria, you know that the lion and the winged lion was their symbol. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Skipping down to Nahum 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I'm going to disgrace you and humiliate you publicly. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. God says you are vile and I'm going to make you more vile. I was thinking about one of the movies, uh, Back to the Future. And the big thug in the movie is always chasing the innocent little guy, you know. I don't even remember their names. But in one scene, this big ogre guy chasing the little guy on the skateboard. And you remember what happens? They're going through the city square and, and the guy's in his big revved up car and he's going to get whoever his name is. Thank you, Marty on the skateboard. And Marty avoids disaster, but Biff ends up in the manure truck, filled with the manure in his car. Well, that's the thought here. God says you're vile. And I'm going to make you more vile. I'm going to judge you. God says in no uncertain terms, these are not the days of Jonah. These are the days of Nahum. These are not the days of mercy. These are the days of judgment. And Nineveh 
and Assyria are going down. Now, if I told you, you know, put this in context, context is everything. For God to say Nineveh is going down, this is a big deal. Nineveh is the biggest city in the world. It's the most powerful city in the world. And just think of this, to destroy, just think of the physical issues involved here. For Nineveh to be destroyed, they've got a wall, just their inner wall, a hundred feet tall, eight miles around, wide enough on top of this wall for three chariots to go at the same time, side by side, 1,200 towers, 14 gates, and inside this area is the royal palace, all the administrative buildings, the wealth of the nations, because Assyria has been murdering and ravaging the nations of the world for decades, the wealth of the world's inside these walls. And then outside this inner ring, actually, they have outer walls. You remember in Jonah's day, it said it took three days to go through Nineveh, and we speculate, we're not sure exactly what that means, but it's a big place. And God says the biggest city in the world with these tall towers for walls is going down. And you know, if you lived in Nineveh, you'd think, no way. But God says, Judgment is coming, and they're not going to escape. This destruction was so complete that Xenophon is a Greek historian, and he was a soldier, and for a brief while he helped lead the Greek forces while they were retreating back through what's modern-day Iraq, which was Assyria. And they go right past these rubble heaps, and they didn't even know that was Nineveh. It's only 200 years later. They didn't even know this was the great city of Nineveh. It's what was left of it. It's, it's fascinating, too. Since the days of the Old Testament, one of these rubble mounds, and remember we're talking about square miles of area, one of these heaps was called, I'm going to forget it in uh, Arabic anyway, it was Jonah's Mound. The people in that area called it Jonah's Mound, one of the heaps that was the remnants of the city of Nineveh. But it's destruction so complete, 200 years later, the Greeks that went by it didn't know that was Nineveh. And it wasn't until the middle to late 1800s that these rubble heaps were identified as Nineveh. In other words, destruction was so complete, people didn't know what it was, what it had been. Today, Nineveh is on the outskirts of the city you hear in the news sometimes, Mosul, in north-central Iraq. Mosul has grown near the Tigris River to now it's begun encompassing portions of that old city. It's been a wasteland for two millennia. Its destruction was that complete. God said he was going to destroy it, and he did. Now, he tells them the reason for the destruction. You remember before, in Jonah's day, we know they're evil. We know they're given to violence. Uh, Jonah didn't tell us a lot about what their sins looked like, but violence was a key word. We know they're violent. But God talks about Nineveh and why he's bringing destruction. Back in chapter 1 at verse 8, he says he's going to pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever Nineveh and Assyria have going on, they've made themselves the enemies of God. So God says they're not potential uh, vessels of mercy anymore. They've made themselves my enemies. Verse 9, you devise plots against the Lord. Verse 11, one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Now think of this. In Jonah's day, when God's telling Jonah why he's showing mercy, one of the things he says is, Jonah, the people in Nineveh, they don't know their right hand from their left. Do you remember? We said morally that means 
they don't have good moral sense like you do. They're doing wrong, and all of us have, there's natural law, we all have consciences, they have all of that. But they were without the kind of instruction that Jonah had. And God says they don't know, in some ways, the difference between right and wrong. In Nahum's day, God says they are plotting evil. They are wicked counselors. It's not, I don't know the difference between right and wrong. It's, I'm given to wrong, and I'm making schemes and plots of how to carry out evil against the Lord. I'm not sure what all that means, but <clears throat> it is interesting that King Sennacherib, one of the Assyrian kings, plotted to take down Judah. The Assyrians had demolished Israel in the north in 722. They were determined to destroy Judah in the south also. And they actually, this is one of the things archaeologically uh, sometimes people will tell you we don't know who existed from the Old Testament really historically. Gosh, you know, there's a stela that was unearthed in Nineveh that shows uh, Judah's king paying homage, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, or Ahaz, paying homage to the king of Assyria. It identifies who he is and it shows him paying tribute. This is one of the things that came out of the, the archaeological excavations in the city of Nineveh. We know this was going on. And Sennacherib comes in to Judah, and he takes almost all the cities. In fact, Lachish, another one of the things that was unearthed in Nineveh, talks about the king of Assyria capturing the walled city of Lachish, just south and west of Jerusalem. So this plotting and this scheming may be Assyria saying to themselves, we're going to take over that place, the Jewish place, with their God. We're going to take them down. In verse 14, it says that God's going to cut off their idols and images, your gods. You've become contemptible. Remember that God had displayed Himself to them as the God who could bring judgment in Jonah's day, and they knew He was real, and they bowed down and called out for mercy and forgiveness and got it. But in Nahum's day, they say, hey, Who's Jehovah? Who's the God of Israel and Judah? And they set up their idols again. They became, God says, contemptible. They had known about the true God, but they turned away and went back to idols. In Nahum 3, verse 1, God says that Nineveh has become the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. In fact, he goes on in verse 3. He says, many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies, if you read anything about the Assyrians and Nineveh, these guys were, it wasn't just that they were going to take over someone's country. It wasn't just that they were going to rout a city and take over for their benefit. They didn't just do that. They murdered. And it wasn't just that they killed men in battle. Uh, the description you heard in Sunday school about dismemberment, this is what they did. They, I won't even go into it. Let's just say... This is a description. God looks at the city of Nineveh in Assyria and he says, you're a place of murder and corpses. It's as if if you could see them spiritually, they're standing, they're alive, but the field around them is filled with the corpses that they've created. They're murderous, violent culture and place. And pillage, if you look in uh, chapter 2, God says that when Nineveh falls, the, the wealth that's taken out of it won't be able to be counted. It's so vast. They're full of what they've robbed and stolen from the others around them. And they've done it for decades. 
So Nineveh, the city full of wealth, God says you're full of corpses and the wealth you've stolen from others. <clears throat> in verse 4 in chapter 3, God also says, harlotries, the mistress of sorceries, harlotries and sorceries. Uh, Nineveh had returned again, not just to idols, but astrology and all the, if you think of uh, dark uh, magic and those things, the city and Assyria, the nation had fallen back into that kind of practice, dark things, if you will. A hundred years earlier, when Jonah preached, they repented. They put on sackcloth, they fasted, they called out to God for mercy, and the city wasn't destroyed. But now, a hundred years later, and just a couple of generations later, those who were shown mercy refused to give any mercy to those around them. And those who had acknowledged the God of Israel a generation earlier had replaced him, the knowledge of him, with idols again. Those who had been spared judgment by God, by the God of Israel, had become the bloodiest and the most cruel of nations and empires. They weren't faithful. They had become proud, arrogant, violent, and treacherous. And Nineveh is the city which destroyed Israel and tried to destroy Judah. And this is an uh, excellent story. If you read Isaiah 37, and there's uh, the same story in Kings and I think Chronicles. When Sennacherib comes down against Jerusalem, and he's already captured all of the outlying areas of, Ju of Judah, he comes up to Jerusalem and he says this to King Hezekiah, Your God that you trust in can no more save you than the gods of the nations I've already destroyed. He taunts Hezekiah and he taunts the Jews telling them their God cannot deliver them. Their God was the God his ancestors had submitted to and sought mercy from. And he comes in in his day and says, I'm bigger and badder than your God. Well, God, in return, God taunts the taunters. He destroys the destroyers, and he lays low the proud. That's what he's going to do to Nineveh, and he does it through Babylon. And a, a coalition of nations around Nineveh actually destroyed the city. And by the way, this is, you, you think of, uh, we set ourselves up in positions that we think we're, we're safe. And Nineveh had these great walls, and you say, well, gosh, how'd the Babylonians and this group with them, how'd they get in? It's assumed that uh, the scriptures here in Nahum talk about flooding. Uh, secular historians record, and this is the assumption, there was such a huge amount of rainfall, it just so happened, the time in which the Babylonians and their groups went in to take down Nineveh, it just so happened that the rainfalls were so tremendous and the Tigris and the surrounding area flooded that it actually washed out underneath the wall and a huge section of wall collapsed so that the armies could go in. And if you think of Babylon, you remember Babylon too later, same thing, this incredible city with these incredible walls and nobody can get us. And if you remember in Daniel 5, they're partying while the Medo-Persians are outside their walls because they think they're safe. And God says, you're going down and you're going down tonight. And how do they get in? They come under the wall where the river comes in. Anyway, just fascinating that they thought they were impregnable and couldn't be destroyed, but God brings a little bit of rain, washes out the wall, just in time for Babylon and their accomplices to go in and take the city. God's going to destroy Nineveh and he tells them why. Now, 
God is, this is switching gears a little bit, but God is the most gracious and compassionate of friends you and I could ever have on one hand. And at the same time, he is the most severe judge you or I could ever face. Nahum 1, Nahum says the Lord is slow to anger. That's what Jonah said. He was afraid of. He knew God's slow to anger. He is slow to anger. Nahum 1 verse 7, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He is good. Jonah 4 2, he's slow to anger, abounding in love. God who relents concerning sending calamity. God's slow to anger. I think of passages like Isaiah where God says of Abraham, he calls Abraham his friend, this one he's committed to, and so he blesses Abraham and he blesses his descendants down through the generation. I'm a friend of Abraham and I bless him generation after generation. Or I think of verses in John 15 when Jesus tells the disciples, you're my friends. And so I tell you what I'm up to. I tell you what I'm about. God is the most compassionate of friends you and I can ever have. Merciful, slow to anger. He doesn't get ticked off easily, you know, like we do with each other. He overlooks sin after sin that we do day after day. I loved our opening song, Prone to Wander. Yes. And you know, if God was not the kind of friend he is, I'd be in trouble. I would be friendless. But no, he's this great, compassionate, forgiving, merciful God and friend. He is that. But you know what he also is? He's a severe, unmerciful judge. And in Nahum 1 verse 8, but, having just said God's good, Nahum says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its site, Nineveh, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is not a good thing. And then two more times in Nahum, he says, I am against you. I am going to bring you down. I am going to judge you. And it's as if you're going to run. Judgment pursues you right into the depths of darkness. There's no escape. You're not getting away. There's no mercy left. This is severe. And this sounds harsh to our ears. It sounds harsh to me. And you know, if you're in a conversation with someone, especially someone raised in the West, who's not a Christian, if you say, you know what, God is loving and merciful and kind, they're ready to agree with you. If you say God will judge, all of a sudden, this is not okay anymore. What do you mean? Well, God's love and God doesn't, that means he doesn't judge. No, (laughs) that's not what the scriptures teach and that's not what Nahum teaches. And I love this, that it's the same city It's the same place. It's the same ethnic group. It's the same nation. Under Jonah that got mercy and under Nahum that gets judgment. And it's the same God. And at one season he said, repent, change your ways, be restored to me and I'll give you mercy. And they did. And the days flowed by and one generation replaced another and they said to the God of Israel and God says, The day of mercy is over and the day of judgment has come and there is no escape. Now, if you talk about God judging, it makes him sound harsh, but I just want you to remember this. This is the perspective you need to have and I would just encourage you, if someone tells you when you talk about God and a God of judgment and God will judge sin and there is a hell and there is judgment in time and there is judgment in eternity and you hear the 
the excuses and the reasons why that can't be true of God, this is what you need to remember, and this is what you can communicate with others. The center of all history, the center of all theology, the center of all judgment, the center of all mercy is Jesus Christ, God's Son, hanging on the cross. It's the, it's the, it's the pivot point of anything you can think of, Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And just think of it this way. Is God judgmental? Absolutely. How do I know that? Because Jesus died on the cross. What does that mean? God the Son comes down and hangs on the cross and God pours out His judgment, His holy wrath and anger for sin on His Son. Is God judgmental? Yes. How do I know? He judged His Son. Now, it wasn't for His Son's sin, but God took the sin of the world... John tells us, your sins, my sins, the sins of Nineveh, Jews, Muslims, Christians, atheists. He took the sins of the world and he piled them on his son, as it were. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And when he became sin for us, God poured out his wrath in judgment on his son. Jesus hanging on the cross is absolute testimony that God judges sin. You can't get away from it. Does God judge? Yes. Will He judge in the future? Yes. How do I know? Because He judged sin in the person of His Son on the cross. Now, is God merciful too? Absolutely. How do I know? Well, why did Jesus hang on the cross, taking God's holy judgment and wrath against sin? Why did He do that? So that God could show mercy. Is God merciful? Absolutely. How do I know? Because Jesus hung on the cross. The point so that God could forgive you and I and Ninevites and Jews and Muslims and atheists as they came to God like Nineveh had under Jonah's preaching. Is God the best, most compassionate, merciful friend you could ever find? Absolutely, because Jesus died for my sins. Is God the severest judge you'll ever face, chasing you into darkness and blackness? Absolutely. How do I know? Because Jesus died on the cross for sins. And if God did not spare His Son in order to forgive those who would embrace Him and trust themselves to Him, do you think there's anything but judgment left for those who refuse His Son? If the cost of mercy is so high that it's God's Son on the cross bearing His wrath for sin, how could God not judge those who thumb their nose at His Son? He couldn't. He is absolutely consistent in his character and in his nature. And we know that he's the greatest friend of sinners and he's the severest judge. And we know it because Jesus died on the cross. It's both. It's God's judgment and it's God's mercy. And when you look at Nineveh, under Jonah, you see God's mercy. God wants to be merciful. And when you look at Nineveh, under Nahum, you see God's judgment. Is he willing to judge Yes. Isaiah calls judgment God's strange work. Not that it's outlandish, not that it's incomprehensible, but it's not what he likes to identify himself by. When my kids were little and growing up, if they said, is your dad uh, mean? Somebody said, is your dad mean? I think they'd say, he can be, or something like that. Even though I think they felt loved and safe and encouraged and we had lots of great times if you ask them 
Can your dad be harsh or severe or strict? I think they'd say, well, yeah, he can be because I've seen it and I felt it. But is that what characterizes your dad's behavior towards you or your fellowship? No. Well, that's, that's what judgment is like with God. It's not what he describes himself by, but it is absolutely true to his character. He must judge sin. The scriptures say God is too holy to behold sin. God cannot live with sin, not because he's not merciful, but because he's holy. So, greatest friend you can ever have, severest judge any of us could ever face. How do I know that? Because Jesus died on the cross. God's judgment and God's mercy. In closing, and just thinking, what do you do with this stuff? The first thing I think of is this, be reconciled to God. I don't want to face, I tremble at the thought of facing God for my own sins. I thank God every day, being the sheep that's prone to wander, I am so thrilled that I can come to God and confess my sin and be forgiven again and again and again and again and again. Be reconciled to God. If you've never trusted Christ for your sins, trust Him. You don't want to face God for your sins. If you trust Christ, if you believe in Him in the language of the New Testament, your sins are covered. They're forgiven. Which ones? Well, which ones were future when Jesus died on the cross? All of mine were. Which ones were past of the Old Testament saints when Jesus died on the cross? All of them. Jesus' death on the cross covered the sins before his death. They cover the sins after his death. You're good to go. But if you've never trusted Christ, trust him. Be reconciled to God. Don't face him as your judge. Embrace him as your friend. Once you've embraced him, don't do what Nineveh did. What'd they do? They went back. They went back to where they'd been before. And you know sometimes how you and I feel... If you're facing some battle, some trial or whatever, and you're all hyped up and you're just crying out to God, help me, help me, help me, and deliverance comes, and all of a sudden you turn around and you forget that you were just praying to God and asking for help, you might even forget to say thanks for the help. And you go right back to doing whatever you were doing before. And we don't want to do that. Nineveh had this close call under Jonah. And man, they cry out, we don't want to be destroyed, save us. Great, and God does. And then what happens? Well, you know, a little time goes by and our tensions are diverted and, and they ended up, that city and those people and their children ended right back where they were, only worse. So don't go back. And that requires things like reading your Bible every day and taking your sins to God, keeping short accounts with Him, praying. It involves hanging out with other people who will encourage you. It means avoiding things that you know are temptations things that are going to lead you back to the life you had before. You know, it requires work. It requires thoughtfulness. It requires encouragement from others. you got to work at it. Or by default, you just kind of slip back to what we were before. So be reconciled and then keep going in the right direction. And the last thing is this, and frankly, we could have spent the whole morning on this. I didn't touch on this before, but it's certainly worth saying in, in Nahum 1, God says, and I'm sorry, I may not find it now, sorry. Nahum 1, oh well. Nahum 1, God says, I'm taking vengeance. I'm the avenger. Do you know that when Paul says this in Romans 12, he's quoting Nahum, which I'll read here in just a minute. 
you and I are to leave vengeance to God. Revenge, paybacks, settling accounts. We're not to take that up. That's not our charge. It's not our cost to bear. Vengeance, in my mind, I like to think of it this way. Vengeance is a poison so lethal it'll kill me, not the person I want to get vengeance on. Vengeance is a bomb so powerful that I'm a suicide bomber when I strap it on. I'm not just harming people around me. I'm killing myself. Vengeance is this thing that's too powerful for mere mortals to exercise. We can't do it. We can't do it well. In Nahum 1, God says to Israel and to Nineveh, I am the avenger. I'm the one who takes vengeance. In your life, you will feel offended, I guarantee, by friends, family, enemies, any and all. People will disappoint you. People will harm you intentionally. People will lie to you. They'll cheat you. Friends will let you down or betray you. I mean, whatever. Just hang around long enough. If it hasn't happened, it will. And you know what your response is going to be? Your response, you and I who love to say God's a God of mercy, love, and compassion, you're going to want to become, you want to become the God of judgment. And I'm going to settle accounts. And I'm going to get back. And I'm going to take vengeance. That's what immediately comes up. You know, for the person who tells you God isn't judgmental, look at them when they're mad. And you tell me if they can then believe God can judge. They'd believe it then, I think. But vengeance is something too powerful, too corrosive, too detrimental for you and I to handle. God says, in the arena of vengeance, paybacks, settling up, God's the one who does it, not us. So, when you're offended and you will be, when you're betrayed and you will be, when you're lied to, cheated, whatever, remember Nahum. God wants to show mercy and compassion. That's what we're called to. Don't Think that you can handle vengeance, leave it to God. Let me close with Paul's comments out of Romans 12, in part quoting Nahum. Paul says to Christians like you and I, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse. Don't be proud, be willing to associate with people of low positions. Don't be conceited. One of the, one of the sins of uh, Syria and Nineveh, pride. When you get puffed up with pride, you think you can handle your own accounts. You can't. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Someone's harmed you, you're told by God directly, don't you harm them back. Someone's betrayed you, you're not called to take your own vengeance. Don't repay, God says, evil for evil. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You can't, relationships are two-way at least. You can't live life for others, but what you can do is as far as you're able, you live at peace. And then, quoting Nahum, Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God says when it comes to vengeance, revenge, settling accounts, that's not for you to pick up. God says, that's mine. Judgment, God says, is my strange work. It's not what I want to be characterized by, but I'm the only one who can do it well. You can't. Don't pick it up. Leave it for me. Nahum is a great reminder of both the kindness of God and the severity of God. 
the kindness of God in mercy and compassion and forgiveness and the severity of God in judgment. And in Jonah's day, Nineveh, this great city, gets God's mercy and compassion. But in Nahum's day, they get what they couldn't avoid. If you forsake God's mercy, there's only one thing left, and they get God's judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're absolutely true to your character and your own person. And that, Lord, while you cannot look on sin or approve it, you've made a way for sinners like us to be reconciled with a holy God like you. And, Lord, I'm amazed again when I think of your son, Jesus, hanging on the cross for my sins, for our sins, for the world's sins. I'm reminded how terrible and real your judgment and your wrath are. And yet, Lord, it's that very judgment on your Son that made way for your mercy and your forgiveness and your compassion to flow. Lord, out of Jesus' bloody side flowed our redemption. Lord, thanks that judgment, vengeance is your strange work and that you characterize yourself by loyal love compassion and forgiveness and I pray that we every day Lord simply remember to run to you to confess our sins and I pray that you would help us be channels of your mercy and compassion to those around us help us Lord remember to share the hope that is in us thanks that you've called us friends in Jesus name amen